bear in mind and, and be in the mental space that you're not selling anybody on anything. You're offering an opportunity. And if it, it truly is a great opportunity. Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Habercos, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate, and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Haverkost, along with Mason McDonald. And today we're going to talk a bit about multifamily investing and buying hundreds of millions of dollars of apartments. Uh, but before we dive into that, how's it going, Mason? Things are good, man. Uh, business is good. Dealing with a lot of complexity in deals I haven't done going into new markets, which is fun and exciting. And uh, I think it's a great start to the new year. And I'm very excited to interview our guest today to learn from him on all of the strategies he's implementing in his business from appropriate delegation to large-scale acquisitions and everything in between. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about hiring and how to you know, structure jobs and, and roles and SOPs accordingly, because that's somewhere I've struggled. And also talk uh, a bit about funds and going and buying big deals. So Taylor Lowe is coming on our show today. And I met Taylor because I've been on his podcast a couple times. He's the founder of the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. And then his company is NT Capital, and they invest in uh, multifamily projects and ultimately cash-flowing assets around the country. And to date, he's partnered on, acquired, or had a hand in over $250 million of multifamily real estate investments. So he's certainly uh, an expert in the space. So Taylor, welcome. Thanks for having me today, guys. Yeah, absolutely. And so we want to dive right into it, right in, into what you're seeing today. So I was just down in Phoenix. I know your company does some business down there. You know, we're up in Colorado and everywhere I go, I'm seeing just huge apartment complexes going up. You know, here in El Paso County, we have 20,000 units in process. I know the Phoenix Metro seeing a similar sort of uh, uh, glut of inventory coming online. So what are you seeing today? How are you and your company approaching the current market and still doing deals? Yeah, great question. So you're absolutely right. There is a lot of inventory coming online in several different markets around the country, and that's having an impact depending on where you are on rents and occupancies. And, you know, it can make some markets struggle a little bit more than they used to. But even beyond that, it's no secret that there are folks in commercial real estate, kind of no matter what asset class you're talking about, which includes large multifamily, who are struggling today because they acquired properties when interest rates were incredibly low and financed those properties somewhat assuming, even though they didn't realize necessarily they were making this assumption, that interest rates weren't going to go up as fast as they did in reality. And a lot of those folks who have had foreclosures or who are struggling today, it comes down to expiration of their interest rate caps, which are essentially insurance policies against higher interest rates on variable rate loans. Well, those caps run out. You can buy them for a set period of time. They run out before your loan does, and then you need to go get another one. And since rates went up so quickly, that has impacted the rates for commercial real estate debt and the cost of interest rate caps. There have been 
several foreclosures, maybe more than several foreclosures around the country in office and multifamily, and I'm sure in other asset classes as well. Those are just the ones that if you read kind of publicly available information out there, you can you can find about. So it's definitely an interesting time and that has both positive and negative connotations, of course. Of course. Uh, but I think a, gr- a good learning time as well for those of us who are paying attention and who have a long-term view of our real estate investments, not just looking to maximize acquisitions in the short run, but to be in the game for the rest of our lives or the rest of our working lives. So Taylor, whenever you're approaching acquiring a property, how if you can speak to it, how long-term are you looking to hold these deals? Are you looking for the long, long haul, or are you typically expecting an exit within five to 10 years? Sure. Yeah. Normally, the period that we look at is five plus or minus two years. It depends on the specific situation. Sometimes you might plan to hold a smidge longer or be able to exit a bit earlier, which is what we saw a lot throughout COVID were deals turning over very quickly as rates were low and there was a little bit of what you might consider mania. And even before COVID, especially before rates started going up back in 2018, folks were turning over deals kind of quickly because rates were falling and things like that. But I mean, more from a, a investment career standpoint, I see it as a, a long-term venture. I intend to, you know, the profits from any deal, I just roll them over into subsequent deals and just you know, keep going and either hold until the conditions are right or look for the best uh, best opportunity. Whereas I think a lot of folks in this space and, and in real estate in general look to do as many acquisitions as they possibly can as quickly as they possibly can without regard for how their teams are structured or how their deals are structured or what the interest rate environment looks like or CapEx or anything like that. That's kind of what I mean by the long-term view. Absolutely. No, and I... I think that's a great response. And I, I do kind of want to dive back in in just a minute, back into kind of the markets you're looking at and the overall uh, indicators that you see in individual markets that you feel are great for investing. But looking on your website, I see you're also in the self-storage space. Uh, can you speak a little bit towards that asset class and kind of some of the distinctions that we're talking about? Of I, I know self-storage within the real estate investing podcast community has been sexy for the past couple of years. And uh, the multifamily market where Dan and I have a little bit of fear and hesitancy to what we're because of what we're seeing in our backyard. But can you talk about what you're seeing right now in self-storage? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right that self-storage was and has been popular in the podcast community, if you will, for, for a while now. And I'd be dishonest if I said that's not the reason that I got into it or that didn't kind of get me started, right? You have to learn about these things somewhere. And pre-COVID, I started learning about the benefits of self-storage. And I think one that was pretty starkly highlighted throughout COVID was that self-storage is, uh, it's a lien-based eviction, essentially. You place a lien against against somebody's contents of their unit if they stop paying, as opposed to multifamily or single family, whatever, when you're renting a residence, then you have to evict them. Depending on where you are, those evictions difficult. And then through COVID, there was the eviction moratorium and you know, all those things that, that folks are well aware of. So that ability to get folks out who aren't paying in self-storage is what kind of first got me interested in self-storage back 
pre-COVID. What we're seeing today is that demand for self-storage in most areas that I'm aware of, at least, is still strong. Units are still getting leased. That's that's still great. Some areas have been overdeveloped, of course, you know, especially primary markets. Folks, uh, REITs and everybody kind of got in and built a lot of self-storage. And self-storage is a very locally driven supply and demand type of market. I mean, people might move to the other side of town for a housing opportunity if they are looking to upgrade or get something more affordable or what have you. But nobody's moving to the other side of town for self-storage. Unless you know, I can't think of any situation where anybody would. People look for self-storage in their backyard. So that's kind of the local driven thing. And what folks typically look for is one, three, and five mile drive radius. There are other ways you can kind of calculate that with things like drive time. There are a lot of tools where you can calculate five, 10, 15 minute drive times and everything along those lines. So locally driven supply and demand is an important factor to be aware of. A lot of what I'm seeing in the industry today and conversations that I'm having with people and kind of more public conversations on places like Twitter, I'm sorry, I cannot call it X. It's going to be Twitter to me forever, is sellers or, or prospective sellers still have pricing expectations above the what the market is willing to pay. And that's driven by interest rate. The, the cost of debt just kind of, it is what it is these days. It's high and prices are still essentially based on a low interest rate environment. Now, if you're someone who has a property that you're thinking about selling and your price that you want is too high for the market and you can still hold, then it's not a problem, right? You can just keep holding it and cash flowing and, and wait that out. The trouble is if you need to sell and your pricing expectation is too high for the market, maybe your debt's running out and, and what have you, that's where folks really get in trouble. Now, I'm not seeing, I'll put an asterisk on this and that, that I'm not seeing folks having trouble with that in self-storage. It's just that pricing mismatch between sellers and buyers, which is the nature of any you know market that that is fluctuating. Another big factor that, from my perspective, is more relevant in self-storage than in multifamily is the cost of construction. Yeah. Because a lot of self-storage investment is, and the business plans are driven by expansion of the facilities. Buy a property that has a few extra acres on it. It's already got some self-storage in there. Buy it and expand the self-storage, lease it up over the preceding couple of years, and then either refi it or sell it. Well, it costs money to build that new self-storage, and you're probably going to want to get a construction loan to do that. Well, rates being higher than they were and construction costs and materials and labor being higher than they were pre-COVID just makes it harder to make deals like that pencil. So I see a general kind of slowdown in the investment market. I'm sure that will change at some point. I don't know which direction it'll change. That's, again, kind of the nature of markets is they're always in flux in one direction or another. Uh, but those are kind of the factors that I would say are are driving a lot of the investment market and storage today. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's quite a few things I want to emphasize and also go go back to there that you said where, you know, mentioning that it's these people with too short term of time horizon, short term plan, short term debt that get themselves in trouble. It's like everyone knows in the long run that real estate tends to go up, at least within the history of the US. But 
I, I heard a phrase from uh, Howard Marks, whose memos I read, where he says, be careful of the story of the six foot man who drowned crossing the river that was five foot deep on average. It's kind of, it's a great point where, yes, on average, you know, real estate goes up, rents go up, things go well, but there can be some big ups and downs. So if you don't have an appropriate time horizon, if you're not capitalized accordingly, and you happen to have to exit or refi at the, one of the downhills, you know, the downturns, you can get in trouble. And so I just want to emphasize that point. One of the biggest reasons people go out of business is short-term debt that they didn't have a second option for a second plan. So what you said about storage sounds from everything I know fairly applicable to multifamily as well in that there's still kind of a freeze where buyer and seller expectations are misaligned and everyone's been talking about this huge downturn in multifamily, but it hasn't really happened anywhere that I'm aware of. Are you seeing any signs of a significant you know, of significant distress Within multifamily? I wouldn't say significant, mm-hmm. but there have been foreclosures. Mm-hmm. There have been situations where investors lost, passive investors lost. Uh, this is not, to be clear, these are not situations that I was involved with, but there have been situations where investors lost some or all of their equity. And from my understanding, a lot of that was driven by, you know, of course, going back to the interest rate thing. And then also, and I think in some cases, maybe, uh, insufficiently applied value add strategy. There are a lot of factors that can feed into this. And some of those have been high profile. There was a very big one in Houston just about a year ago back in March, but there have been others that aren't publicly discussed that you can kind of only hear about if you're in the right rooms with the right networks, because sometimes even passive investors are afraid to discuss these things publicly because they're concerned about okay, the sponsor lost my money, but if I post about it publicly, maybe they're going to come after me. Yeah, I'm I'm hearing about these things happening and it's it's unfortunate, right? People, investors having to give the keys back to the bank and the bank, you know, dispose of the property somehow, you know, sell it to another investor or what have you. So yeah, there there is distress out there. And I, I believe personally that a lot of that is driven by debt. Do you hear about the deals that Dan and I are doing and feel like you lack the capital or knowledge to do them yourself? Allow us to be your partners in this and visit gupland.com to learn more about how we can provide you with all the capital to complete land transactions, as well as the expertise and guidance for you to create your own business. Visit us at gupland.com. That makes sense. So backing up a little bit, kind of where we started this conversation, Taylor, Whenever you're looking at a market to invest in, because you're, if you're operating a fund, you have a responsibility to your investors and you never want to be the person that has to make that call of saying, hey, we lost all your money. So there's markets where you see stuff like that happen. And yeah, Houston, stuff like that will happen every once in a while, but it's a strong market. What are kind of the indicators in general at the highest level that you look for? And then kind of the emerging opportunities that you will see as well as versus going into the super established places. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, there it starts with economic factors, right? We want to look at markets that have stable and growing economies. So start there, right? And then you dig a bit deeper, make sure they have not only economic growth, but that includes job growth, right? Because people pay their rent through their jobs. 
We want to see that people are moving and immigrating to the market, increasing the overall demand for housing. We also want to look at the diversification of the industry in that particular market or industries, I should say, because if you have one city that's driven too heavily by one particular uh, type of industry and you get a downturn in that industry, that can impact certain cities pretty heavily, right? And then one additional criteria for me that has grown in importance over my real estate investing career is just the general size of the market. Early on, I was more interested in investing in what you would call tertiary cities, which are still established cities with economies, with jobs and everything like that. But in general, they're just smaller. They're not the more secondary or primary cities that you're familiar with. But what I learned is that just given the size of those cities, you can still get pretty significant swings in their economies because they're just so small, right? You can still have just a handful of driving employers and folks. I see in general in the U.S. more of a migration to the cities rather than migration, you know, outward from the cities, now into the suburbs, what have you, but still in larger MSAs. So for me, I prefer just bigger markets, bigger cities in general, because you have more of a base there, more of an economic pool in general. And I think we see long-term more of a trend of net migration from more rural areas into more urban environments. So the size of the city is uh, is important as well. Those are all really good points. And um, it makes a lot of sense too. And I, I think COVID kind of changed things for a little bit. But in terms of human behavior, you have to look at the rule rather than the exception of, yeah, there was a little bit of urban flight that occurred during a pandemic, which happens. However, I know Dan has a lot of experience um, having tons of success in those tertiary markets. Do you think you could give the audience an example of like a primary city, secondary city, tertiary city within one of the states that people can kind of, I don't know, understand which market is which? Sure. So just to pick on Texas, we I, early on, I did a deal in Amarillo, Texas, and that worked out quite well for us, but we held it. We had a pre-COVID and then we held it through COVID. And there were some indications from the local job market, especially early on, that you know, major employers kind of shut their doors temporarily when kind of everybody thought the world was falling apart. So that I would invest in a, in a market of that size again. I would consider maybe like San Antonio more of a secondary city and then something like Dallas-Fort Worth, a, a primary MSA because DFW is, is huge. You could probably lump Houston in as well as more of a primary city. Others might dispute that, but I don't think there's any debate about like the size of, of Dallas as compared to San Antonio. Well, I, I think that right there where um, I'm sure, you know, a good amount of people in Texas are listening and I lived in San Antonio, lived in Houston and San Antonio is the ninth largest city in the United States. But if you look at the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, I mean, it's massive. It's going to be probably the most massive city in the United States in 20 or 30 years. And I think that's something where regardless of your perception or something like that from the data standpoint going in of, okay, San Antonio is a great market, but it's going to be viewed more as a secondary market, which is why there might not be quite as rapid of growth as certain areas. And so I'm excited for all the people from San Antonio that are listening to come after us in the comments or something. 
I would say I'm definitely not an expert on San Antonio. I've never done a deal there. I've been there. It's beautiful. Loved San Antonio. It's okay. Knocking San Antonio by any extent. Um, but I was looking recently. It was a couple weeks ago, actually, I was looking. And I'm not sure why I looked at this. But the if you look at the just area, the, the square footage or square mileage of Houston compared to, I think I compared it to Delaware, the Houston MSA, I'm working off of memory here a little bit, but is bigger than the entire state of Delaware. And if you could say, well, I'm going to invest in Houston. Okay. that doesn't give you a whole lot of information about where precisely you're investing. But if you said, I'm going to invest in Delaware or right, what part of Delaware, I, I said, pick Delaware. I went to college in Delaware, but you know, I think that just speaks to kind of understanding better where you're investing. And then also talk with Europeans a lot who, who often don't appreciate just the overall size of the country, let alone Texas. So things to uh, bear in mind. Yeah. So Taylor, two more follow-up questions there. The first being, does the vintage of properties in a metro play a role in where you invest? Because having done this for a while myself, I don't want to touch anything that's older than me, unless it was just an absolute prime A-plus location. And then uh, number two, and kind of as a corollary to that, are there any buildings where you say, hey, this is a beautiful building, great area. We're going to structure this where we're just keeping it. So that's a great point about the vintage of properties. I don't sweat the overall vintage of a property, vintage of properties in an area quite as much. I'm more concerned about the the property that I'm buying or investing in. But I think that is a very important criteria that or criteria criterion that folks don't speak about enough, particularly when you kind of get into the multifamily guru space that mm -hmm. a deal's a deal, whatever, just buy it. No, I mean, properties built in the 60s and 70s can and often do, I would say even typically, do have a lot of deferred maintenance that the stuff you're just going to have to deal with. And, and I've been there. I bought properties of that age and they just tend to have a lot of issues that you're going to have to deal with. And they might not even be issues when you buy it, but they're going to pop up in the time that you own it. So for me, I don't invest in anything older than the 1980s. Now I'm 34. I was actually born in the 80s. So maybe it's you know, getting to your criteria about properties older than you. Properties built in the 80s are mostly older than me. But still, I think it's important for any investor out there, especially in multifamily, to think about the vintage of the properties that you're investing in and set your criteria appropriately. I'm not telling you what criteria you should have, but understand that the age of the property is super, super important. And gurus don't talk about that, but it's it's very important. Now, your, your other question actually lost. The other question was, do you ever come across properties that are so prime, excellent assets that you structure it where you're just going to keep it for as long as you, forever? So that's a great question. And for the deals that we do, we're raising capital from passive investors and, you know, holding the deal for that period of time, adding value and then, and then selling. And the kind of indefinite hold is not impossible, but generally less viable with that model. Because even if it's a great deal, investors are a bit wary of marrying an invest, uh, a yeah. GP or a syndicator forever, right? They want to know the time that they're going to get out of the deal. I'm seeing more folks in this industry talk about crystallization of GP interest. 
that's an area that I'm not an expert on, but I understand that that's a way for GPs to earn their return kind of on the back end and still get paid and keep LPs and deals for a longer term. But it's not something that I've dug into, you know, quite a bit, very much. It's it, I might look into it more in the future, but it comes down to LPs not wanting to be in any given deal forever, right? Because our passive investors are all at different stages of their lives. I mean, I have investors all the way from their 20s into their late 60s. I don't think I have anybody in their 70s and older, but everybody has a different situation as to when they're going to want or need that money back. And also what does indefinite hold mean to them? Like somebody in their 20s, sure, indefinite hold, they've got a longer time horizon. But somebody in their 60s has generally a shorter time horizon for how long they'd intend to invest in a deal. So we're not doing that right now. Uh, not something that I'm necessarily opposed to and might become more relevant uh, down the road. I appreciate that response. And I, I think it offers us an opportunity to transition a little bit into the conversation surrounding the fund. Uh, Dan and I are in the process of exploring creating our own fund and selfishly want to hear kind of what it looks like from the beginning into the fund operations and investor relations. And obviously there's stuff you can speak about and not speak about, but if you were in our shoes and had developed a pretty good track record and have good operator experience, how, how would you, or how did you go about the uh, creation of your fund? Sure. I'll, I'll throw a couple of caveats out here. I want to make it clear. I'm not, I'm not talking about any specific deal I'm going to speak in generalities. I would say that we do both what you would call a fund deal and what I call single asset syndications, kind of your, your one-off syndication deal that often or typically are just one property that you're acquiring, but not always. Sometimes it's a handful of properties, but they're all identified and you're closing on them all at once and it's kind of a closed end thing. I call that single asset. I think a lot of other people do as well. There's not really a better term for it. We do both. I'm not talking again about any specific uh, setup here, but but when it comes to working with investors and raising capital, I believe that, and very strongly, that investors invest in you first and then in your deal. So having a relationship, having a track record, having yourself in front of them, showing them what you're up to, even before you have a deal or a fund to present to them, helps them get more comfortable with you and better understand if they think you might be a right fit for their money or vice versa, if there's a right fit to invest with you. How you divide up things like a preferred return and GPLP splits and breakpoints and waterfalls, I think is really driven by the type of investment that you're doing. Again, your your track record, somebody with a much longer, more established track record and different different economic cycles, if you will, it's a pre-Great Recession, if they've done very well throughout that time, they might be able to command or command a higher percentage or a higher split essentially as the GP and and get that from their investors because they're they have such a great track record. If you're newer, you might have to give up a, a bigger piece of the deal to show investors, you know, they're being put first and you're building your track record as you go. As far as uh, another big question that often comes up is things like 506B versus 506C. The We've done both. 
506B, for the listeners that aren't aware, is the exemption to registration where you can accept an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited, sophisticated investors. And you also cannot publicly advertise. You have to have a pre-existing substantive relationship with all your investors. The other one being 506C, you can publicly advertise, but you can only accept accredited investors and you can accept an unlimited number of them. But you also have to have a third party verify their accredited investor status, which there are tools available and companies that will help you do that. So it's not a very big pain, but it's something uh, to be well aware of. Generally, for those who are starting funds that are going to be more open-ended and a little less defined in what you're buying, maybe open for a year raising capital, folks tend to do those under 506C because you can continue to start new investor relationships and again, publicly advertise. But as a downside, you can't expect, you can't accept capital from non-accredited, sophisticated investors. What else? What else? Where else would you like to yeah, uh, I, take I think that was a really great overview. Um, and I think talking about kind of that blind pool model that a lot of REITs might have or different family offices or private equity firms create, potentially getting into some of the intangibles of the uh, operator um, or the GP or, or whatever you want to call it in this sense of how do you feel like you can sell people on investing in a blind pool where, you know, that's something Dan and I struggle with uh, sometimes of we're in the land space and land is more simple and more complex than people make it out to be of if you're not in the land space, land is very weird and it's very confusing. And that's why there's not as much institutional money in it. So if we were to go out and create a blind pool for people wanting to invest in us that we then go out and kind of choose the product that we're the asset that we're investing in, what's some advice that you would maybe give us at whatever level? When Mason and I were starting our land businesses, capital was the biggest hurdle for both of us. Over the years, we found this is the case for nearly everyone in the land business. And that's where Ground Up Partners came from. Ground Up Partners is a capital provider for land deals. We'll bring all the funds necessary to close the deal. You just bring the signed contract. Visit guckland.com to submit your deal and get started today. Sure. So I would say first to bear in mind and, and be in the mental space that you're not selling anybody on anything. You're offering an opportunity. And if it truly is a great opportunity, then if you come at it with that mind space, then I think it's overall more productive. It's also less stressful. And when you're talking with potential investors, nobody likes to be sold anything. I mean, think about the last time you bought a car. People hate buying cars because they're always being sold a car, right? They they don't, yeah, they want to buy a car, but they don't want to be sold a car. And I think the same goes for raising investor capital. And again, to go back to what I said much earlier on is people invest in you much more than they invest in your deal. Now they invest in your deal and they should review your deal and all the documents and everything, of course, right? That's that's kind of a given. But first it's starting with you and the more that you show people that you're responsible, you're experienced, you understand your business model, you're making the right moves and put yourself out there in the right way. That's been the most productive thing for me, to be honest with you. And and just to put a, a number on that, for me at this point, well, it's probably about four months ago that I did this analysis, but for me, 
two-thirds of my investors came to me through listening to my podcast. And they just tuned in and they say, hey, I'd like to learn more about what Taylor's up to. Go on my website, schedule a call, have a call, and get on the list and ultimately decide whether or not they want to invest. And two-thirds of the people who have invested with me came through that way, through listening to my show. And I think that speaks to the power of putting yourself out there and creating it's kind of a one-way relationship, right? You're presenting them to you, but they're not necessarily telling you their entire life story, right? But that's that's okay. I mean, I think one guy who's really good at this, and I have his book on my shelf here. I'm not sure where it is anymore. I rearranged recently. It's right behind my head. Joe Fairless. He's very, very good. Obviously, he's been very productive at, at raising capital and doing multifamily deals. But when you listen to Joe's show, you listen to him conduct an interview, especially over time, you really feel like you get to know Joe. And I've known Joe since 2016 or so, and because he's been my mentor. And even folks who I've spoken with who haven't done a deal with him, don't really know him, still feel like they know him really well. And he puts himself out there. He's shared his journey all along the way. He's shared personal things. And that's something that I'm trying to do more over time, trying to get more comfortable with. So one recent example is a friend of mine who's just an LP investor in a lot of different deals. That asking her, tell me what you think about Joe's brand, essentially. I was like, what do you think about it? Why do you think he's so successful? And she said, part of why I think is because he's shared a lot of not just his business journey, but also his personal journey. When he got married, he would talk about, hey, I got married when, or I'm getting married or whenever it was. And when he was having a, a, a baby, he's, you know, talk about having a baby and becoming a father and some of those personal things that, that people really relate to. So I'm trying to get better personally about putting myself out there a bit more. I'm also kind of waffling my head about whether I want to share this, but getting more comfortable about putting out things that are related to uh, my values. And more specifically, what I mean is, what was it? November, December of last year. I don't remember the precise date, but I was really bothered by all of the anti-Semitism that I was seeing in the U.S. all over the place. It really bugged me. And I talked about I talked about it with my wife all the time. And I just said, I feel like I really need to say something about this. And my podcast is real estate investing. I never talk about anything political or rarely even current events. But I said, I got to say something. So I put out an episode where I was talking about something else. And then toward the end, I just did a couple minutes saying, hey, to our Jewish friends out there, I'm seeing all this happening. I'm so sorry. I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but message of support, basically. I see this. I hope you're well. That's about it. And I got emails from folks who said, hey, thank you for saying that. And I would have said it, you know, regardless, because it was really bothering me. But I think putting out things that speak to folks at that deeper level is a powerful way to go because they, they better understand who you are, what you care about, and that gets back to them investing, uh, investing with you. And, you know, I didn't do that particular message with an agenda of maybe it'll help me raise more money. It was just because it's really, really bothering me. And I feel like I need to counter that in some way and, and say something that is related to my values. And I, I think if you look to do that in general, not just with current events, because they can get so div divisive and whatever, but with how you go about doing business or Maybe you see somebody in your industry doing something that you don't care for. You know, you don't need to call them out, but mention that. Hey, the, it's hard to get too specific, but these guys are doing this thing, or I saw somebody do this thing, and I disagree with that. We don't do this that way. And it bugs me. It's something for you to look out for. That's just something to think about is, is help people build a relationship with you 
and then you know the deal kind of comes later but they they want to understand you first oh yeah i think i mean everything you said there for anyone that listened to that go back and rewind it and listen several times over because there's a lot of points i want to take out of that and starting first kind of on the deal and the fun fundraising side of it of selling yourself and it's a great analogy to buying a car versus getting a car sold to you, where in your mind, you would think that those individual assets indications of, oh, you're you're just selling the deal of, look at this, look, look at the cap rate on this, look at the market, look at how undervalued it is, look at all these things that we're going to do. But you know how many deals exactly like that spieled to me exact, in the exact same way that I receive in my inbox every single day? Why would I invest with you over someone else? And then I think taking taking what you're talking about of it's it's difficult whenever you have created a platform for yourself where you have the idea of you want to appeal to everyone. You don't want to offend anyone. You don't want to insult anyone. But at the end of the day, you're going to draw people that are more similar to you to listen to your show anyways. So I think it's it's tricky to find that balance of appealing to everyone. But we have kind of just like we talked about on the show of we have a set audience of people that we are attempting to reach out. We're attempting to reach out to high-level business owners and people that aren't uh, too dogmatic in their thinking or uh, have a lot of success in their uh, professional career. And then I guess our moms who probably listen to the show the most, which my mom's a Jew. So, you know, we're we're a Jewish family, so she'll love this episode. But And then I think... Uh, hi, Mom. Yeah, hi, Mom. I, I think one of my favorite books of all time that I recommend to everyone that if you haven't read that... It, I think you would really enjoy it. It's called The Leadership Challenge by uh, Kuzas and Posner. And it talks about the five practices of exemplary leadership. In the first section, there's one section and then you know two subsections which within each one. It starts with model the way and clarify values by finding your voice and affirming shared ideals. And then set examples by aligning actions with shared values. And I think that was an approach that uh, I had as a leader um, back when I was in healthcare and that if you can have that and show that, you start with clarifying your values. That way people know what you stand for. And whenever people know what you stand for and you've done a good job personalizing yourself, then you're going to gain uh, a pretty great listenership, pretty great following, and uh, so many people to believe in that shared vision that you create. So I'll step off my soapbox. Uh, you got me hyped there talking about all the things that uh, that you were talking about and pass it off to Dan because... Uh, that got me excited, Taylor. So I, I appreciate you sharing it with us. Great. Yeah, I, honestly, I, I was pretty enthused by that too because I think we could do a better job on our end of, there's a lot of things with the land that we hear preached that are ridiculous and things that gurus use to sell courses uh, that are not reality and more just taking advantage of people in situations they want to get out of. And so uh, I'm sure Mason and I will talk about that offline. But we don't want to miss something that you mentioned to us before we got on the show. So let's transition to how you've been able to effectively hire virtual assistants in your business. Because I've used them, and I think Mason Mason has too, for very simple tasks. But we have not had success as far as full-time or permanent employees with VAs. So how have you gone about uh, doing that? Sure. And I think... I, I don't want to get on your case here, but this is a mistake that I made. This is why I point this out. But I think it starts with some of the phrasing that you used. I'm sure you didn't realize you were using, but for me, and I think for a lot of other people who want to hire VAs, starts us on the wrong foot. And you said, 
I've used them. Mm. That's a mistake. Mm -hmm. And it permeates throughout how we treat and work with our VAs because we don't use employees. We hire employees. And at the end of the day, our employees are people. And I think in the VA conversation generally, there's a lot of kind of talk and positioning of starting from this point of treating our VAs like they're robots, like they're not people or like they're, you know, whatever. They're, they're not people with their own needs, wants, desires, families, relationships that they have, right? They're coming to us. They're looking for a job and opportunities because they have their own dreams, wants, and desires. And they also have their own emotions and needs when it comes to being productive at work, for example. So when we look at, and we start from the foot of, I, mean, I don't mean to get on your case here, because I did this. I did 100% think this is why I talk. Totally open to be feedback. When we start with the footing of using VAs, we don't treat them like people who can learn and grow and have their own needs, wants, and desires. And then when it comes to training them on a particular task, we tend to be less patient, or we tend to think, why can't you just figure this out instead of having, again, patience that we need to be effective at teaching someone how to do something or to set goals effectively or to work with them when they need help. And you can't make it work with every single VA out there, right? There are people at the end of the day, and there's some people who are good employees and some people are bad employees, right? You need to find the right people in, in the first place and then treat them like people and employees. And I think the big mistake that I made, and I had to be taught this, right? I paid for a course for somebody to teach me this. And then once he taught me it, I was like, wow, I can't believe I didn't think about that was just understanding that reality and building everything off of how you work with your VAs on the understanding that they're people, they're, they need to get paid, they have all those needs, they need to learn, they need to be supported in their jobs, they need to be taught and coached and held to account, of course. That doesn't mean we're kind of letting people do whatever, but really that's a lot of it. And and when you learn a bit more about how VAs are treated by some folks who who hire VAs for their business, not just in real estate, but but folks who want basically just cheap labor overseas, is some folks... Uh, employers won't pay on time. Some folks will, won't pay at all. They'll just try to rip people off and get free work out of them. And I mean, that's just straight up wrong, right? The, it's it's incredible once you learn, frankly, how low the bar is in being a decent employer of someone who's overseas, who is you know intelligent, many times college educated, many, especially I hire Filipinos, speak excellent English, you know, really are well put together. They just happen to live in a lower cost of living area where we can you know, be competitive in hiring them. So when we treat them exactly the same as you would treat someone who's in your office next to you or near you or whatever, I think that is really the principle that we need to go after uh, or, or, or maintain when we're hiring VAs for our businesses. And I say that again, because I made that mistake several times and got so frustrated. And I thought, how are all these people who I know who aren't lying to me having success hiring VAs for their businesses? How in the world are they doing that? And it's because they got that part right in the first place. And I wasn't. And once I did, things changed. I think that's a really important approach. And I, I feel like potentially 
certain people that don't have management experience, whenever they heard that conversation, they're like, Taylor, that's not what I'm looking for. I, I, I want the step-by-step process and the manual. And what people fail to recognize is the hardest part of business, the hardest part of management, the hardest part of being successful in life is not the hard technical skills. It's the soft skills, it's the leadership mentality. It's the management and how you treat people is going to go way, way further uh, than all of the other things. Can I can I give you a, an insight going back a bit oh, yeah. earlier that I believe? That's also the sales skills. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's going back to the values, how you treat yeah. people, how people feel about you. You're going to have investors like, right, once they've invested their money with you, you're you're still on the hook, right? You need to tell them how their money's doing. You need to give them updates and they need to get that feel from you before they invest with you. It's It's across the business, right? It's a... Dale Carnegie thing, right? So important. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And whenever you're seeking out employees or people that you want to work with, whenever you're looking at, it's the chart that I think Simon Sinek uses a lot of like high trust versus high performance of, you'd always go with the high trust medium performances versus the high performance low trust. And I think that uh, the more you can lead with values, uh, the the more success you're going to have. But we're, we're starting to kind of move towards the end, but I, I do want to ask kind of one more question related to the virtual assistants. What roles do you have them performing in your company? Is it all administrative related or kind of where, where do they fit into your company or how, how is it structured or maybe talk through your org chart in some capacity? Sure. So my virtual assistants work primarily on the marketing side of things within my podcast and, and all of that side of the business. If so things that that might be confidential or email related. Like if somebody if you send me an email that comes to me and nobody else. If you have a question about a deal, that comes to me and nobody else. Walling off those super important topics. No matter how much I trust my virtual assistants, my investors need to be able to get a, a hold of me and me alone. They need to be able to contact me in a confidential manner where there's no risk of anybody else getting that information or interpreting it in some way, right? That's all just me. For me, my virtual assistants are handling tasks that are on the marketing side of things that aren't related to investment or confidential related, you know, information. And it's not because I don't trust my VAs. It's because some things I think are too important to delegate to anybody. And when it comes to investor relations, I mean, that's that's the top of the list. And at pre-COVID, actually, it's about a week before the COVID lockdowns in March of 2020, I went to a weekend mastermind in New Jersey with a bunch of successful syndicators and real estate investors at a winery in New Jersey. And talking to a couple of really successful guys whose names you would recognize, we were just talking about how they manage their time. I was wondering, how do you guys do this? How are you hiring people? And what they said was they value the individual task in their business and assign a dollar per hour to those tasks. And they assign a value to their own time in terms of dollars per hour. And some of these folks, when you speak with them, they're going to value their own time from 500 to 1,000 to multiple thousands of dollars per hour so that any task that is worth, quote unquote, less than that, they're going to hire someone for, either a VA or someone in the United States. And digging a little bit deeper, I asked them, okay, so what are some of the highest value dollar per hour activities in your business? 
investor relations, number one. In investor conversations, that's something never delegate, right? And there are some folks in the industry, if you're a much bigger business, you can hire investor relations people to handle that. But, you know, that's when you get to a certain point. But when you're kind of the the brand, you know, that needs to be your conversation. I believe your investors should say, have your personal cell phone number. All my investors do. If they lose it, they should send me an email. I'll send it right to them. They can call me anytime. Some of them do. Email, you need to be responsive with those things. But understanding tasks that you definitely should not delegate and understanding the value of those investor relationships, I think is you know super important. Not sure exactly how I got onto that, but, but it comes down to understanding value of the activities and hiring people to handle the lower dollar per hour activities for you. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So first and foremost, your VAs are people, treat them as such. Uh, and then number two, you're hitting on one of the biggest mistakes I made initially where I offloaded one of the most important tasks in my business acquisitions uh, first, where in hindsight, if I were starting over, I probably would have done transaction coordination, data pulling, all the simple stuff, just like you described there. Uh, but Taylor, this has been great. Uh, A lot of good information, very actionable information for our audience here. Uh, Are there any questions that we didn't ask that we should have or that you wish we'd asked? No, you guys asked some, uh, some, some bangers, if you will. Okay. And then where can people get in touch with you or find out more about you? Sure. You can go to investwithtaylor.com if you want to have a conversation about potentially investing with us. Or you can shoot me an email, taylor at ntcapitalgroup.com. Excellent. Well, you heard it here, guys. Reach out to Taylor. Uh, he is an expert on multifamily syndication. Uh, until next time, that's Dan Abercost and Mason McDonald with the Big Picture Blueprint signing off. And that's it for today's episode of the Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating. And we'll see you in the next episode.